The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Uh, morning, all. Uh, first, let me thank the Star Foundation for giving us the funding to allow us to do these conference calls. We're thrilled to have with us today Carl Misner, who I think, as you all know, is a professor of law at Fordham Law School. In addition to his sterling biography, which we have distributed, he is a public intellectual of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I think it's fair to say, Carl, today's presentation is part of your being a public intellectual, which is, in, which is informing the public about issues of importance in China and in the U.S.-China relationship. But we're thrilled to have you today. It's about seven days since the communique, ten days since the plenum, so we've had some time to mull over what's been said, so let me turn it over to you, and then I'll ask some questions, and I'll open the floor to questions from everybody on the call. Carl? Okay, well, thank you very much, Steve. Thanks to the National Committee for organizing this conference call, and thanks for all of you for calling in. It's an honor to be here. Let me respond briefly to two questions that I'm commonly asked, and then open it to the audience. First, what are party leaders trying to do in choosing this moment to emphasize Yifan Zhuguo, or ruling China according to law. After all, the general political environment in China does not seem particularly conducive to this subject right now. Party authorities have been embroiled in some deep black box political infighting that is perhaps very much the opposite of this concept, and Chinese rights lawyers such as Bu Zhejiang and Xu Zhiyong are faced with stiff state repression. So why law and why now? Part of the confusion stems from the fact that the English term law invokes several different concepts that differ significantly from what Chinese authorities are currently trying to do in deploying the term fa. Law, for most English-speaking mass audiences, triggers ideas of bottom-up citizen rights and independent judicial adjudication of legal norms. Neither of these is the thrust of what central Chinese party leaders are currently trying to do with their reforms. And this is why trying to refer to the current plenum document as promoting the rule of law is particularly problematic. In contrast, there is a third core idea that is included in the English term law that is very much tied to the way in which party authorities are using the term fa and fa law. It is encapsulated in the concept of order, improved top-down centralized governance. That's what the party is aiming for. This is leading party authorities to promote legal reforms to improve their orderly governance of society, and it is also leading them to promote entirely extra-legal ones to improve internal party governance. Most Western observers would not group reforms to the secretive party disciplinary system along with court reforms, but from the perspective of Chinese authorities, these are part and parcel of the same thing. Of course, this has nothing to do with promoting liberal democratic ideals. Rather, my read is that Xi Jinping is seeking to institutionalize his own power after two tumultuous years of political infighting, to promote modest bureaucratic reforms as a means to improve central control over local authorities, and to draw a contrast between himself and his supposed rival during Kong, and emphasizing order and giving some room for technocratic legal reform may help him do that. The second question is, what does the content of the party's plenum documents look like? And perhaps what might we, we, what might we, we expect over the next several years in terms of Chinese legal reform? And for this, I'd summarize three subheadings. First, enhanced party control. Second, technical legal reforms to improve governance. And the third is a return to the past. 
The plenum decision released last week emphasizes the absolute leadership of the party in no uncertain terms. It underlines the continuing existence of party political legal committees as tools to manage legal institutions such as the courts, the procurator, and the police. And, of course, this just reflects the reality of how China actually does operate in practice. But there are several new things as well. First, the document clarifies the institutional role of party leadership in a way that it wasn't before. So, for example, Section 2 requires that important new laws be reported to central party authorities to be decided on first. And it also requires that all laws and amendments be similarly reported to the party committee in the National People's Legislature. Now, if you're an optimist, you might say, well, this is kind of openly acknowledging the way party leadership works in practice and perhaps is a step towards institutionalizing it. But there's another side as well. Back in the 1990s, when party authorities started bringing the Yifan Zhuguo concept into plenum documents, liberals both inside and outside the government were able to jump on the concept of the law and play with it as a way of promoting deeper reform. After all, the Chinese constitution itself only makes one fleeting reference to the leading role of the party in the preface. So if you're a liberal public intellectual, such as Hui Fang or Xu Jiong, you are perhaps thinking, hmm, maybe there's a way to acknowledge the overarching political role of the party while gradually moving to build up independent legal institutions in practice. And what it looks to me is that this line of thinking has been curtailed, if not shut down. The plenum document seems to be baking day-to-day party leadership of legal and judicial organs into the definition of governing China according to law in a way that we haven't quite seen before. I think something similar is happening with respect to other fields, too. Late 1990s party plenum documents, when discussing legal reform, involved concepts of citizen rights, of elections, of citizen participation. And this also gave space to reformers both inside and outside the state. The early 2000s, for example, saw attention on the state side to things such as legislative hearings and on the party side to internal reforms that aimed at increasing citizen input in the selection of local officials. And it looked to me like the relevant, looks to me like the relevant language in the party Senate document has been weakened. Instead, it's being replaced with more of a focus on law as something that must be obeyed, both by officials and also by citizens. Law is becoming conceive of or more clearly defined as an external constraint on behavior rather than as a channel for participation. And the last thing I'll flag under this party control element is it does look to me that Chinese authorities are sending out some pretty clear signals that they intend to strengthen political controls with respect to some specific groups. And so that's why Section 6 refers to both strengthening the political indoctrination of lawyers with respect to party leadership and also remodeling legal academia to produce a cadre of scholars with the correct political outlook. Now, let me move on to the second element I applied with respect to legal reform. Here, the plenum document clearly gives support to a range of technical legal reforms aimed at enhancing governance. One of the most notable is in Section 4, and, and that includes things such as the support for tri- tribunals of the Supreme People's Court to handle important administrative and commercial cases that cross provincial boundaries, and similar experiments for the creation of local courts and procurators that cross local administrative jurisdictions. And if you couple these together with the current experiments which are ongoing in a number of Chinese provinces aimed at moving control of local court finances and personnel out of the hands of local governments and vesting it with higher courts, you 
see that what Chinese party authorities are doing is they're trying to centralize control over judicial power at a higher level in an effort to curb the interference of local authorities in court decisions. And precisely the same motivation is behind the new instructions to keep records as to the frequency of interference of local authorities in judicial decisions and tie that to their career evaluations and salaries in an effort to curb such interference. Another thing that you're seeing in the Plenum decision is support for concepts of judicial professionalization and litigation that had been stressed in the late 1990s and the early 2000s under former Supreme People's Court head Shaoyang, but had gone into eclipse in recent years. Starting around 2005, and particularly with the appointment of Wang Chengjun as SPC head in 2008, you saw the entire Chinese judicial system shift against these earlier concepts and in favor of politicized mediation and populist judging as a means to do whatever it takes to resolve citizen disputes, including throwing law out the window. Now, the 2014 plenum decision seems to strike a different tone. Trials are supposed to be the center of the litigation system. Citizen petitions are supposed to be led back into the legal system, and judicial professionalization is being stressed once again. So if I was going to try to summarize what is taking place here, it seems to me that the legal technocrats are being sort of allowed back or led back into the sandbox that is the legal and judicial system, but that that size of that sandbox has been reduced and the walls separating it from the rest of governance at large in China have been raised, sort of referring back to the first point I made with respect to the, the control. Now, the last point I'm going to make is with regard to the return to the past. The last two years have seen the Chinese dream, or the Zhongguo Meng, emerge as a new official slogan. And what this involves is a strong return to Chinese history and traditional culture, heavily attacked by party leaders during the 20th century as a source for party legitimacy. And this tone shows up in the party plenum document as well. So you see instructions to authorities, to the state, to the, to the state at large, to absorb the essence of Chinese legal culture and promote Chinese, traditional Chinese, Chinese culture. Uh, and if you were watching the collective study session that Xi Jinping held for the Politburo right before the plenum meeting, you undoubtedly noticed its focus, history and traditional culture, as well as the very clear statement by Xi that the search for answers to China's problems can only be found within China itself. And this is a somewhat of a different tone compare 12 years ago. Back in 2002, when the first collective study session of this sequence of recent Politburo you know, study sessions was held under Hu Jintao was in December of 2002, the subject was the Chinese Constitution. And what you saw in the following years is that sort of signal that, you know, that Hu Jintao was laying down a marker. He was opening up some space, and you saw Chinese public interest scholars, lawyers, and judges do things like invoke Marbury versus Madison or the New York Times versus Sullivan and try to do things like rely on the Chinese Constitution and the legislation law in order to strike down detention systems such as the custody and repatriation system in 2003. So what it looks to me is that Chinese authorities are perhaps moving to tame some of those ideological forces and shift back to their own past. And of course, this isn't just the state. It also reflects an increased pride in Chinese culture and sort of you know, the Guoshe movement in the late 1990s uh, and, and other trends that are taking place in society at large. But this is a new shift. Um, it does feel to me like one of the characteristics of reform-era China post-1978 
but for the past 30 or 35 years, has been a search, a look outward. And that meant that China has been looking outward to foreign models uh, in a way to resolve, sort of look for ways to resolve its own problems. I'm not sure that's just true anymore. Uh, that sentence that I mentioned earlier, that sentence about, that was in this plenum document about absorbing the essence of legal culture, it includes a final phrase in there, which is also, China will not copy foreign rule of law ideals, ideals or models. And so I think if the late 20th century saw a vigorous effort on the part of China to learn from foreign legal models, it's quite possible that the coming years will see much more official attention devoted to examining, for example, how the imperial censorate focused in the Ming Dynasty or the role of Tang Dynasty magistrates in maintaining social order. And that may be an element of the discourse on legal reform in China going forward. I'll stop there, and I'll uh, let the operator turn it over for questions. Okay, well, let, let me start off with a few. I think that's a great great intro to kind of what's going on. The, the document is now about, um, you know, less than a week old. What what has been kind of the, the follow-up in the intervening few days since the document has come out? What's kind of the op-ed world, you know, said about this? And are we getting kind of additional insight into the meaning of the document? Yes, yeah, so, so some of, some of, you are seeing some of those trends uh, play out already. Uh, but it is, as, as Steve mentioned, it's only been a week or so. I, I'll sort of uh, mention, I can mention three just off the top of my head. So. One of the references in the document is to creating National Constitution Day as an official holiday. And I believe the National, uh, the Standing Committee of the, of the National People's Congress uh, took action within the last couple of days to designate, I think it's one of the days in early December, as National Constitution Day. Um, in the op-ed world, you're starting to see, for example, the South China Morning Post this morning had an op-ed about, um, you know, China will not only, uh, and this is an op-ed by a mainland, uh, I think a tax scholar, uh, saying things such as, uh, in addition to relying on the rule of law, China also has a long tradition of relying on the rule of morality. And so coming forward in China, those two elements will be seized together. And the other thing I had just seen this morning was the announcement by, um, I think it was, I think it was Wang Qishen, uh, might, have been, might have been somebody else in the Supreme People's Park Rotter, that Chinese authorities are going to attempt to revive the, um, I think it's the Ministry of Supervision, uh, in an effort to sort of strengthen their anti-corruption efforts. So to improve the bureaucracy in a better, in a, in a improve the anti-corruption organs in a way to sort of ramp up their bureaucratic weight in terms of addressing corruption issues within the, the state itself. And what does it mean for the anti-corruption effort? In other words, when I was there, there was little, I was there both before the plenum, during the plenum, and after the plenum. There was little discussion of the plenum. There was enormous discussion about the anti-corruption effort. Kind of the plenum almost seemed like the tail of the dog, with the dog being the anti-corruption effort. How does the plenum fit into, you know, to the anti-corruption campaign? I think part. I think part of it we're still waiting for. I mean, the, the, in, the, in the plenum decision, there is a line which is emphasized. The, the emphasis is that law will be used to govern the state. And similarly, within the party apparatus itself, party rules and party regulations are the, are, that is the, those are the rules that we will be paying attention to within the party itself. So I think consistent with an effort to sort of push society to be governed by law, there is going to be an effort going forward to say the internal party rules are something that we are going to hold people to, whether they can do that in practice is, is the part. Part of that element is also raising the, 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 within, my understanding is 
they're going to be raising the bureaucratic, they're raising the bureaucratic level of disciplinary official uh, within the apparatus to sort of give them more leeway these are the other party authorities. And what I just mentioned with regard to the Ministry of Supervision, that's a government entity that is going to apparently get more weight, more uh, power to go after corruption within the government. But of course, the party, uh, that's still going to be run by the disciplinary organ. So, so in effect, it's, it's fairly neutral vis-a-vis the... That, is that what you're saying? Vis-a-vis the, -vis the party disciplinary inspection committee, that it's kind of like doesn't... It somewhat strengthens its power, but it, it's not kind of part and parcel of kind of this, this new effort. There's a struck well, me, kind of not, not looking at the details, but kind of being there looking at the newspaper every day, that this is all about emphasizing to kind of the La Beijing that it's a different China today than it was a few years ago. That yes, I think, I think that's party it. officials by law, that yes, this law applies to you, but it applies to party officials that's why they're now saying we've got 55 ministerial level people who've been, you know, are being disciplined and ultimately will be in prison. I would say from the document itself, I wouldn't say that the stress is on party officials being governed by law. I think the stress is party officials are going to be governed, and that's by party regulation. But they are trying to say we are very serious about governing, about anti-corruption, but that's being administered to the party system the emphasis on the law is something that truly applies to government, to party officials, as well as society at large. I think that is that is not as strongly emphasized. What about the, um, you know, you, you look at it as a centralization, that the, um, you know, kind of the, the, the move towards judicial independence of local courts, which is in the document, you yes. see that as a centralization, whereas I think the people in China viewed it as, well, it's going to be, really closer to independent courts. You seem to somewhat brush that off. I mean, there's, there's nothing in the, 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 the language is very clear that it's, you know, it, 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 it's still party leadership, party control. That, that element is being stressed very strongly. Right. In the sense, what the party wants to do, what the authorities are trying to do, is to try to take it out of the hands of local officials precisely because they are worried about the you know, existing problem of local control by local owners. So, the term independence, I would sort of I focus independent on local authorities. Yeah, I mean, sort of, we're trying to get better supervision. Central authorities want better supervision of local authorities, and we want to take some of these, take control of this out of the hands of local government authorities and vest it with judicial. Judi it's the central judicial authorities who are supervising it. Or, or do I uh, that Provincial. They're going to try to. They're going to try to pull the local the funding and control of local courts up to the provincial level and uh, out of the hands of the judicial level. authorities or provincial civil authorities? Provincial judicial authorities. Right, so kind of like an appellate court system in the U.S. I, I, I'm, I'm just, you're seeing it as a party centralization. I'm seeing it as an attempt to impose some form of judicial independence that getting the local court out from under the local party secretary. Uh, and putting it under the higher level party official, right? No, putting it under the judicial authorities, who who is being supervised by the by the by the Junta which is continually going, to, which will continue to operate. What does it mean for foreigners? Uh, so, for foreigners, uh, they're, 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 the 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 one part where they clearly highlight the interest in foreigners is that there is a strong interest going forward in uh, 
Chinese Chinese authorities participating in the drafting of international uh, legal. So it looks to me like they're, the party is, party authorities are signaling that they want more Chinese individuals participating in the drafting of international treaties and international uh, legal cooperation. I sense that they, they feel that there's uh, a lot of international legal documents that sort of are being developed, and China doesn't currently have enough uh, sort of participation in those. So I think there is an element in here where we want more Chinese officials to be involved in the UN, involved in international cooperation, and that's clearly something going forward. In terms of what it means for foreigners, I mean, there's, I think there is a suspicion of foreign, uh, you know, suspicion of foreign, well, but that's, that's the one thing that's very clearly flagged. Foreign investors. Uh, I'm not. That I'm not. I'm not as clearly seeing anything. I mean, there, there's an interest. Uh, they're they're flagging law. They're flagging regulations. Um, yeah, I'm not. I on that particular point, I don't have anything specific that I would say. Go, going back to that previous point, you know, where I have a slightly different reading of it. Mm-hmm. Let, let me just read the, the the language where it says Supreme Peoples. Supreme People's Court will establish circuit courts. The establishment Mm -hmm. of people's courts and people's procurates operating across administrative areas will be explored, and the establishment of pro bono litigation systems raised by prosecutorial bodies will be explored. It sounds to me like they're moving towards a, 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 a system that looks slightly more like ours. I mean, it's, I, I, I think that's, I'm, I'm not sure that I can, I can agree with that. I just, I mean, I agree that that is something where they're trying to get out from the control of local government officials, but if you actually look at all the other elements where, you know, uh, I'm just reading from the language. I'm not just quoting well, the document. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I, I know, and that's, that's true. But if you sort of look at the other, I mean, you know, if you go to the bottom of the, the first section, it's, you know, if we will, you know, absorb the essence of Chinese, uh, you know, Chinese traditional Chinese legal culture, but we will absolutely not uh, imitate any sort of foreign, you know, legal concept or model. So, you know, if they are, it's, but you're not saying they're moving that's more like I'm not saying that's the intent. I'm saying that, that there is some recognition on the part of the, you know, of the party that having an independent judiciary is good in terms of allowing the people to believe in the legal system. Just the way that the party disciplinary inspection committee, the one thing was clear, especially during this trip, is, is the, the Lao Bai Xing loves this anti-corruption effort of bringing down mm-hmm. party officials who've been guilty of corruption. Right. Um, yeah, I, mean, I agree with the centralization, but you know, when you're using the term independence, I think that requires you to jump over all of the elements in that in the uh, in a document where they're underlying point at, you know time after time that you know, absolutely party leadership that you know party political party political legal committees will continue to be the core of how we administer the legal system. Right. And how what percentage of cases does the party legal committee actually um, interfere in? They're not. They're not. We don't have good figures on that. I mean, uh, you know. It's in, it depends whether you mean, you know, are you talking about interference with individual cases? Are you talking about setting broad policies, such as certain types of cases will not be handled? Are you talking about, I mean, this, you know, interference takes a range of different forms. Uh, but, you know, it's 
Well, clearly setting how policy. Does, clearly setting policy. That uh, you know, they do. I mean, mm-hmm. That's that's accepted. The question that I've always wrestled with is how many cases are actually interfered with by the party, by the uh, you know political legal committee. Mm-hmm. We don't know. We don't very clear. It's, it's very very few. And it's the same, same thing with the, in the United States Supreme Court. Only there's like a couple dozen uh, cases per year, but we seem to think that it has a shadow effect on the uh, legal system as a And this whole kind of, uh, you, you kind of gave a sense that they're developing almost this interstate commerce clause where, where if there's one province is discriminating against another province, you know, they want to fix that. What, what, what was that kind I, of effect? I do think that's that's probably the element with the circuit court language that you're reading, the circuit tribunal uh, language that they're reading. They're, they're trying to figure out a way of getting some of those cases out of the hands of local local authorities to perhaps you know have them handled by people outside the uh, outside the relevant uh, jurisdiction. Uh-huh. Great. All right. We've opened we've opened a lot of issues here. Let me, uh, Josh. Let's turn it over to. We have a very distinguished audience many move are, are legal scholars, so let me turn it over to people uh, to ask some questions. Excellent. Thank you. At this time, we will open the floor for questions. If you would like to ask a question, please press the star key followed by the one key on your touchtone phone now. Questions will be taken in the order in which they are received. If at any time you would like to remove yourself from the questioning queue, just press star 2. Again, to ask a question, please press star 1. By the way, before we go to the first question, let me just ask, how does the Hong Kong demonstrations fit into all of this? Obviously, they were going on during, before, during, and after the plan. I'm not, I'm not seeing a, a huge uh, emphasis. I mean, they sort of do make the obligatory nod towards one party, one system, uh, but it's not, there's not like there's a very, you know, an opposing Taiwan independence, uh, but I'm not seeing like, it's not like, this, this thing had to have been drafted over you know nine eight to nine months beforehand. So right, yeah, yeah. I guess they do have a line in there about supporting the decisions of the of the Hong Kong special the the, the, the uh, chief executive in Hong Kong. So maybe that maybe somebody decided to add that. But I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, it said what? Oh, they, they 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 have they have one line in there about that. In the Hong Kong section, it sort of says we will support the. Uh, you know the, the leadership and the decisions of the uh, the Hong Kong chief, chief executive. So that, that's the one phrase fragment. In there. I could sort of, maybe maybe somebody decided to add that in at the last minute to sort of highlight that we're behind the chief executive. But I can't tell on this. Josh, questions? Yes, we have our first question from William Alford. Oh. Speaking of legal hey. scholars. <laughs> Uh, thanks, it's Bill Alfred from Harvard. Thanks, Carl. That was great. Uh, just a couple of quick observations and a question. So, so I think somewhere between what Steve was saying and what you were just saying, uh, there's maybe incrementalism, at least on the part of the court. Joe Chang, mm-hmm. the current party yeah. secretary and uh, chief justice, president of the court, does seem within the confines of the system to be pushing. But, Steve, I would distinguish between independence from local protectionism and independence from the party. So the latter clearly right. 
isn't going to be the case even if there's more recentralization. Recentralization may be very necessary uh, to, to get away from local protectionism. A couple of quick things. Uh, they mentioned uh, uh, legal advisors and government uh, departments being important. They uh, mentioned uh, much tighter management of foreign NGOs. That's going to be a concern for foreigners. Bringing the petitioning system more within the bounds of the law. Um, I, I kind of, I'm a little less uh, bleak than Carl, but I, I would think his characterization is a very good and strong one. I guess what I want to ask in terms of questions are, uh, Carl and Steve, how do you see this interplaying with the fact that many academics and many lawyers, even if not at the extreme of Hui Fong and the liberals, you know, still are moving toward a you know greater professionalism that would seem in tension with uh, really tight party control. I mean, if you go to the university, clearly there's been a lot of unhappiness in the last couple of years in the law schools with how tight uh, party control is. So how do you see that interplaying? Is there going to be a serious crackdown on uh, legal professionals, uh, on legal academics and so forth? Uh, I think uh, if you look at, I think the relevant section is to look at, I think you want to look at section... Six, and you want to go to six three, and you want to go to the second paragraph in there. It does look like to me that they're they're specifically targeting uh, the legal academics. I think that that is something. There is emphasis on getting uh, legal academics with the correct political outlook, uh, who have the uh, you know understand the jungle voting and. I've already heard from a couple people that, you know, in the, in the, in the study meetings as they're sort of talking about some of the, some of these documents, uh, there is an emphasis on, they're like, oh, we didn't, we, we hadn't, we hadn't seen as strong an emphasis in academia as recent, uh, recently. Uh, I would point out some of the things that happened with CAS over the summer where you were getting, uh, some, some strong language coming out of there. As well as if you look at the research, uh, the sort of the the, the relevant sort of government grants for legal research uh, or re research, I think six of them had to do with Xi Jinping thought. So mm -hmm. I think there, I think there is going to be a move towards um, towards having this is going to play out in academia. In, a way. in the 1990s and early 2000s, there was this sense that uh, academia was perhaps somewhat removed from some of these trends. It looks like this is opening the door to, you know, the academic world gets accepted more strongly. Follow up on that, Bill? Yeah, I, I mean, I still think, Carl, there's going to, in spite of what's in the document, uh, some people may be, uh, among lawyers, too, it's not just a, 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 a scholastic question, uh, you know, people may be too far uh, uh, removed easily to be, cabined in the way the documents suggest, so I guess I was wondering about implementation. Let me make one other quick comment, and then I don't want to hog the phone since many are on cue. Um, going back to the Chinese past, of course, doesn't necessarily dictate a totally unlawful path or a totally uh, party-controlled path. I mean, the past can, be, can mean so many different things in China, right? There's so many resources that can be drawn from that that it's uh, not at all. It's a little bit like in, in, in the different readings we would have of what a, a founding father said. Uh, so, so I don't think that should be seen as a totally bleak uh, uh, sign. Um, anyway, enough from me.
Thank you very much. On that, no, on that point, I think you're completely right. So actually, on, on the, I actually think, well, there's the, on the point about the past, I think that you, you hit on a really interesting uh, point there, which is I think you're, you're right that this is going to be a big secular shift that's going to begin to sort of work its way through a range of different areas. Look at the comments that she was making on, you know, an architecture or on art and, and, and a range mm-hmm. of other so the problem, the, the, my concern is that, of course, what happens when this type of new line comes through is that you're going to have a approved political discourse. It won't be, let's just have a subjective al- uh, evaluation of what Chinese history is. It will be, there will be a particular line that will be But I think you're on the, you're on exactly the, the right discourse, which is going to, we need to have over the next, the next 10 years, is, well, if China's moving back towards the past, which past is it moving towards? Are we going to the Ming Dynasty or are we going to the Tang Dynasty? And I think that's where the interesting discussion it used to be that okay, we're going to have these discussions about the German legal model, or the or, but it could be that the the interesting thing in the future is well, what, how did the Tang actually operate and how did that compare to the Ming? That may be where you know there starts to be some you know some interesting stuff that goes on. Did the document read Confucian slightly? Not yet. They haven't. They haven't done that. But he's been showing up in in, 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 in the future. He's been showing up. You know, 2,365th anniversary of Confucius's birth. He was there, uh, and you're, you're getting a lot. That's coming out a lot in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, in the public uh, the public talking point. Okay. Next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Robert Peterzik. Hi, this is Bob Peterzak at Sidley Austin. Thanks for the very uh, helpful and, and incisive remarks and thoughts on the subject. Uh, one of the issues that um, American businessmen have with China, and I think it's a deterrent to doing business with China, has always been the inability to depend on the Chinese legal system to enforce uh, obligations of Chinese citizens or judgments or other aspects that, <clears throat> that are clearly expected in the West. Do you think that this document was ultimately driven to some extent at least by that, and irrespective of whether it was, uh, what do you see in the document that would be informative for a U.S. business interest thinking of going and doing business in China? That's a good question. On the first, on the first question, I mean, I don't think this was driven specifically with corporate, foreign corporate interests in mind. I think the, uh, I think the, um, I think the, the, the Chinese authorities, just like in the United States, they're, they are responding to domestic issues. They're responding, in this, the Chinese leaders themselves are thinking about internal political struggles of uh, the elite. They're thinking about how Chinese citizens themselves look at the system. You know, she is worried about, you know, do, do citizens believe in the state? Are they willing to support us? And so that's much more than the idea of, how will this play internationally is, is really what's pushing the document. Um, with respect to sort of what's going forward, with like wh- what this might mean for foreign corporate uh, uh, people coming to, to China going in the future, there's one thing that I haven't seen in the document, but I think is quite important for uh, foreign business people to, to think about, which is over the last year, one of the, one of the key things that I've observed, which is, particularly worrying was the resort to sort of mediatized confessions on television, not only by you had the foreign corporate investigators of, of uh, in, in Shanghai, you had uh, you know you got the the, the Uyghur uh, the, the sort of uh, Uyghurs accused of terrorist activities who are uh, who, who self confessions. You had even sort of some uh, social media celebrities. That was a situation where it looked to me like 
somebody within the system was experimenting with, we're just going to go, you know, use television, use sort of public popularized trials as a way of sending signals. We're not, it's not even so much the legal process. It's just showing up on the 7 p.m. evening news. I think that's something that's particularly worrying. And I don't know, like, when, when this document comes out, what do we see going forward? Does this mean because the state's deciding it's going to emphasize, because the party's deciding it's going to emphasize law, somebody's deciding that some of those activities will be tamped down? Or is there some language in here that I haven't fully picked up on that's giving an okay to that? I think that would be something that's very good to, important to watch going forward. So nothing in here that's particularly uh, encouraging to foreign businesses. I mean, you know, I would, I would imagine that for your, for, for, for businesses, you know, the emphasis on order, the emphasis on, you know, rule, watching how that plays out would be good. Great. Thank you. More, I would add more supervision of local courts. Yeah. Not be a benefit. Yep. Thank you. Again, to ask a question, please press star one. Again, to ask a question, that is star and one. So, Carl, let me add one if we don't have somebody jumping on. Sure. Right, which is, you know, the third plenum kind of documents were, were almost revolutionary in their, in their kind of plan for what China will go through over the next, you know, eight years of, of President Xi's presidency. This, much less so. How do the two relate? Kind of how, you know, the, the third, I mean, it's really quite an extraordinary document. Whereas this, you kind of read, and again, you know, when the third plenum came out, it was, it, the, the results of the third plenum came out, it's what everybody talked about. Literally this, you know, you watch the evening news when I was in China, and they read the announcement. It took 20 minutes, I think, on the evening news, and that was when they had some commentators. But nobody really discussed, didn't grip people as opposed to right. the third one, where it really was, everybody was interested. Right. Um, you know, and I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I think part of it might be that you know, some of these reforms, such as the one you, you were mentioning, when they trying to get, separate out local, uh, uh, separate out courts from local control. I, I can understand, and again, the general emphasis on party, ruling the party through rule. I think those potentially are somebody in the system is trying to uh, perhaps push forward bureaucratic and institutional reform, perhaps to sort of realize some of those goals from the uh, from the third plan. So that may be that there may be a tie between us. Yeah, I think, I, and I would, you know, kind of the left, yeah, the, the people who have dealings with the justice system of China obviously are dealing yeah. at the very lowest level. So to some degree, that's. That's where the, the intersection of the people and the judicial system. Absolutely. Um, and I was looking, just in response to the last question, I was looking for, I thought there was a, thought there was a reference to IP Corp. I was looking through the documents to see if I can find that. Um, I don't see a specific reference to that. That would have been, I mean, that was one of the pushes that they had had was to try to establish IP courts at different levels, and I thought that might have, that might have been fleshed out in the document. That would be something that the foreign businesses would be interested in. Yeah, there's no, even no. though we know that, that, that now 
most intellectual property rights cases are brought by Chinese firms against Chinese firms, uh, it's obviously very relevant to foreign businesses there. But I didn't, right. was there anything in the document about that? I, I was just looking for that. I didn't see anything specifically on that. Josh, anybody else in the queue? We do. We have two more questions. The next question comes from Raymond Wong. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, uh, this is Raymond. I uh, just want to participate in, in what I saw. Uh, I read the article myself, and I think there are three important things that we should look at. The first one, we talk about the Constitution date uh, on December 4th every year. Mm -hmm. And I think they are trying to take the rule of man out of uh, the system will become rule of uh, law, and they have the constitution, so all the officials will have to swear in when they uh, take office. Very similar to our system now. Uh, this is uh, number one. The number two thing I observe is the, uh, the registration of cases, where in the past you can go to court, and uh, it will have to be investigated before the case is being uh, registered. Right now, you can just go to court and register. Anyone can go to court, and just like our system, you can file an action, and uh, it, would, it wouldn't be ignored. So in the past, politics can take an important role, whether the government can listen or not listen to your case at all. And now they have to entertain all the cases that come to, to the court. That means that uh, the people normally have to go to Beijing, Shustang, Fang, you know, go to the central government now. That would be eliminated, I think. The third thing I observe is the jury system. <clears throat> they are trying to uh, emulate our way of taking jury, basically taking some of the power from the judges. And this is uh, what I observe also. So I agree with... Uh, uh, Steve, uh, they are more and more like us now, and I also agree with Carl that because the Renda, you know, the, the People's Congress is overlooking on all the top-down management, so the people in the prosecutor, uh, whether they are judges or prosecutors, they really have to look into politics, but they are not looking at so much of the local politics. They are looking at more and more higher to the central government. But politics still would be a part of the whole process. This is what I observe. Just want to share my my thoughts with you. Great. And, and I think the, certainly the mention of the Constitution that's going to be very interesting. Uh, one of the things to watch for on that front is to see what extent, to what extent, uh, the uh, you actually see any sort of institutional mechanisms created on that. I mean, back in about you know a decade ago, when there was also significant interest around uh, the Constitution. 2003, of course, is the Sinjabang case in which you saw a range of Chinese public interest lawyers attempt to rely on the Constitution and the legislation law uh, as a way to sort of invalidate uh, legislation that was potentially uh, problematic. At that point, they were submitting that the legislation law allows the National People's Standing Committee of the National People's Congress to receive and to invalidate legislation which is potentially in conflict, which is in conflict with the Constitution or higher-level norms. So folks like Sambiao, folks like Xu Jiang were attempting at that point 10 years ago to use some of those channels. And there was a flurry of interest to where people were thinking, well, maybe the National People's Standing Committee and the National People's Congress would actually evolve and create a mechanism to sort of receive and, uh, and review these, these, uh, these materials. Uh, that at least publicly, you're not, you haven't seen that take place. Now, behind the scenes, of course, the Legal Affairs Office of the, of the NPC does play a role. 
But one thing on the constitutional side to watch would be whether or not you actually see some kind of mechanism begin to evolve, some kind of institution. On the end, on the sort of case-receiving uh, material, I think that's also going to be interesting, when you, interesting to watch in terms of the Shantong or petitioners who are coming. Uh, there is an instruction there, you know, you pointed to the instructions where there are you know, instructions to need to receive cases that are coming in. Of course, the other sentence which is in there as well is that we have to, uh, increase discipline for people who are bringing problematic litigation. And that, of course, is also going to be directed to petitioners who are going to sort of crowd into the new court channels. You know, if you open up the court channels, the petitioners will go there, and then you're going to end up, you know, somebody's going to end up having to decide what to do with them, and it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, the rule of law was amended into the Constitution in 1993, so it's been a while, uh, and I, I don't think the, the system has been adhered to the Constitution that much. And I remember in 1992, I went to Beijing. That was the first law firm that Jinhe was established at that time. That is a privatizing law firm. So I think the history of rule of law in China is very young. And for them to be moving this fast is a very progressive uh, uh, from, from, you know, in a short period of time. Yeah, I remember, uh, and yeah, yeah, right, and, and, and I remember hearing the same thing in 2003, too. So, uh, I know, you know, I've always, always hold out hope that that will continue. Right. <laughs> Carl, do you think that the not having, a, you know, the head of the Zheng Fawei, the, the political legal committee on the standing committee is relevant to any of this consideration? I actually, so that's actually one of the memes that sort of has gotten into the public, the popular press, that what has happened with the Zheng Fawei, that, of course, you know, Zhou Kong was on the standing committee now, Meng Jianzhu was only on the Politburo, so somehow this has become... Uh, a, a takedown of the Zhongfang apparatus. I actually think that, that people have sort of misinterpreted what's happening there. If you actually look at who's the person who's guiding the Zhongfang apparatus, it's clearly Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping, every time you are seeing sort of statements come out with respect to how you know, political legal order, it's originating in Xi's speech. And if you look at the formation of the new domestic security committee, the sort of national security committee, which a commission which is going to handle not only foreign but also domestic issues. What you're actually seeing is that Xi Jinping himself is essentially absorbing the Junta apparatus. So Zhou Yongkong's old portfolio is being absorbed by Xi Jinping himself. So in fact, rather than looking at it as sort of, oh, this is somehow the Junta apparatus being downgraded, I would look at it as being, it's being, you're seeing an interesting development here where it's being the top person himself is taking over the domestic security portfolio, including, of course, the rule of the law, the law portfolio. Interesting view. Uh, Josh, next question. Thanks, Raymond. Thank you. Our next question comes from Virginia Harper Hope. Hi, Carl. Thanks again for this uh, great comment. Really fascinating, and it, it's uh, great to have you be able to present at, at this forum. I've, I've very much benefited from it. Um, a couple questions. Um, First is regarding that time frame. I'm curious. Um, I know there's uh, several pilot programs on particularly the judicial reform question. I'm curious if you've heard um, just recently any further detail about which of these priorities might be um, moving forward more rapidly perhaps than we thought or which might be perhaps um, slower than, than had been expected prior to the plenum. 
Um, so that's the first question. And then the second has to do with the concept of transparency or public accountability. Um, I, I heard you saying that uh, this kind of emphasis on the legal system and formal law might signal a turn away from the, you know, kind of populist justice and we just kind of don't know. Um, I, I, I have an interest in, in kind of thinking about this question of public oversight that I, and I think it translates into some other policy areas. For example, uh, we've historically thought, I think, about notions of public oversight as really being a synonym for ultimate oversight or accountability to the party and its leadership. Um, but I, I also find it interesting that uh, in many places in the law at present, there seems to be a, um, a formal recognition of the need perhaps for what we might call here public-private partnerships where we have government and business working on a problem together or um, civil society being seen as being an important actor at the table um, and talk about the need for accountability and a greater engagement of all these sectors together, but the state role in almost every one of those examples remaining very central. Um, so I think in all those areas, when we think about what do those developments mean, I think this whole question of what does public accountability mean, to what extent does business need to be publicly accountable, to what extent does civil society need to be more transparent, and does transparency just really mean greater avenues for control by the state, or are you seeing this as a space for um, where rule of law might provide protection and, and um, you know, where, where transparency might be seen more positively as, as creating a greater space for either civil society um, or for, uh, you know, clearer uh, relationships between business and the state. I, I, I guess you're probably more pessimistic, but I thought I'd throw out this question of transparency and what we might look for in the future in that regard. Uh, that's interesting. Let me start with, I can start with the second one first, which is on the public accountability side. So th this is more of my gut reaction. Um, I sort of feel that we're, you are getting the interest in transparency, and I think you're getting the interest in transparency in judicial transparency. I think that is something that you're getting, uh, you're getting some, you're getting some traction with. And so, for example, um, you know, the push on uh, having court, uh, you know, wave law, and you, that, that's undoubtedly, you know, you saw that with the July trial. Uh, the, the mention of one of the earlier people who called in with respect to sort of jury stuff, that, that, that transparency within the judiciary, the press, the idea that, you know, court opinions need to be online. Uh, that's something that you're getting traction with, too. I can read that as an idea that within the judicial apparatus, you've got probably potentially because of Joe Tony, perhaps, perhaps but within the judicial apparatus, you're getting some clear set of instructions on that. The part about transparency that I'm less clear about is when it comes to things such as um, public hearings. That's something, for example, that we were seeing more of a push on back uh, in the early 2000s, uh, where, for example, American Bar Association and a couple other organizations were having, were really pushing the concept of, of, of uh, you know, hearings, legislative hearings before any kind of, uh, before any kind of uh, new legislation was coming out. I'm not sure that I'm seeing that. So maybe, quite potentially, one thing is you're getting different signals and sort of transparency in sort of different areas. You're seeing more openness in some, but perhaps sort of more of a pullback in others. I'm not, I'm not entirely I'm not entirely sure on that. 
With respect to faster or slower, one of the things that I didn't see flagged in this in the decision was which you had mentioned, which was the sort of the specific effort. There's the effort to create circuit courts to create courts that are outside of the control of local uh, local um, you know across existing local boundaries. The specific reforms over this summer, these pilot reforms, which are ongoing in six provinces, are ones about specifically withdrawing the financial and the personnel control from local courts and from local government authorities and investing them with uh, provincial courts. And I don't see that referenced in here uh, in the de- decision, which is interesting because if that was such a you know huge reform, you you, know, you would have thought maybe there, there would be flagging it, but maybe it's just going to go on um, anyway. So you're also asking about sort of faster or slower. Um, you know, I'm not entirely the, the one other thing I'd seen was definitely I, that not in the decision, but I'd seen some reference that there may be more of an interest in cutting back on the use of the death penalty, um, and that might be that might be something where again maybe things within the judicial system itself that don't require as much of a sign off on by other government uh, authorities, maybe you have more ability for people within the judiciary to run with that. Um, but that's a good question. I'll keep thinking about those. Thanks, Carl. Sure. Thank you. At this time, we have no further questions in the queue. So, Josh, let's go back. Uh, no, <laughs> Carl, I think we, got, uh, we still have a, about four minutes left. Sure. So, so why now? What's the, you know, what's the motivation for for she to to do this to do this at this point at a time when when we're actually from a Western point of view you know we're seeing crackdown on defense lawyers crackdown on any form of organization uh, that calls into question the legitimacy of the of the party so why what why it, you know in October of 2014 is the leadership doing this so I think the uh, Couple, couple things. So, it, it, I think does go back to the idea of institutionalization of power. I mean, you have been in a situation over the last two years where you have had it's, it's been a tough time for the bureaucracy. You have had uh, you know a tough anti-corruption campaign. You've had uh, sort of internal political machinations, just like you mentioned. I was I was China over in China over the summer, and you had the distinct distinct sense that people at the mid levels of the Chinese bureaucracy were in some ways paralyzed. They were looking for what's going to happen next. I do think that when you you have the plenum and you devote it to ruling China according to law, you are sending some kind of a signal that maybe we are moving back towards a more institutionalization of the rules of the game. Not necessarily, we're not going to take out the concept of law here, but just, you know, the idea of the, we are going to try to institutionalize power we are going to try to, uh, uh, you know, rule in a more predictable way. And I can understand that potentially as a way of sending a signal to the bureaucracy that, okay, things are going to start to calm down. Not, I don't think without, it's not, uh, but the fact that this party plenum was going to be devoted to Yifan Zhuguo was announced the same day that Zhou Yongkong was announced that he was going to be, uh, was under, was under investigation. There was a, there was a, the, the, the party document that announced those two things came with the same, with the same thing. And I don't think that's a, uh, that's a, that's a, uh, I don't think that's a, uh, uh, coincidence. Uh, second, I think that there are, there is a need to address institutional 
to move forward with deeper economic reforms. And so this is perhaps quite logically a step in that direction. And three, just as you mentioned, you know, it strikes a, it strikes a, 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 a nerve with the populace at large. This is something that is also popular. So the combination of all those things, three things together, I think, sort of makes this the right Right time uh, to, to try to, to push to, to designate this as a, as a topic for central, central attention. Now, you mentioned Zhou Yunkang. There was a lot of speculation before the plenum that, you know, that the resolution of his case would be announced either before or during the, the plenum. It didn't happen. Any sense of why and when we can expect that? No, I don't. I don't know precisely. I, I did hear from one person. I can't remember who it was. That you know, based on the the time which it takes to investigate a case of this magnitude. Like I think they go back, somebody was going back and looking at Chen Liangyu uh, and Chen Shikong and other high-level officials in Guatemala as well. They, they came out with the, the, the idea that, you know, if it was handed over for investigation, you were still going to be several months. It's not like they have to proceed through the, own, through the internal party procedure, and that still could be several months off. So we have no sense of, of uh, when this is going to help. Oh, right, exactly. Yeah. And I, I was hearing that almost half of the, the ministerial-level prosecutions have been related to uh, Joe Yunkong, that, that wow. people who were prosecuted were, had some relationship with him. Do you know if that's that, true? I don't know. That one, I, that one I'm not sure about, but I guess we could imagine that. But, I, but I'm not sure. I mean, I am aware, the people who, who sort of have looked at this, they make the point that there is an element of the anti-corruption campaign that's clearly directed at, at Joe Yunkong, particularly high-level officials, but there is an element of this campaign which is just broad-based, we're rooting out corruption in the party. It's not all entirely political. Yeah, I, mean, there, there, I, I, I think I've heard there are tens of thousands of prosecutions at the local level. Right, you know, right. fewer and fewer as you work your way up the chain. But exactly. Going after flies and tigers. Well, our allotted time is, is I guess we've gone over an hour, but it's been, um, Carl, thank you so much for shedding a lot of light on something which we have not focused on nearly enough here in the United States. I thank you all for joining us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.